0: There aren't a lot of spare chairs. Um, there's one there, so there's two back there. And we could even put a couple here against the wall um, so that as the week goes on, weekend goes on, if people want to take a break from sitting on the floor, you can take one of the chairs. And uh, if you're going back and forth, when you're not on the chair, but you're sitting on the floor, then leave the stuff, leave your chair free for other people to use. It's a nice idea not to uh, hold two spots. Feel free to go back and forth, but that way uh, other people have a spot to use if they need it. One of the things, being on retreat together, really... It's like when we do walking meditation at the center in a group, how uh, we all have to come into sync. It's a little bit like that, except it's more complicated because we're not just sitting together, we're walking together. Some of us are sitting and some of us are walking and some of us are sipping tea and some of us will be in our rooms taking care of our bodies. So, What is it that we're all kind of sympathetically vibrating? What are we coming together around on this retreat? Because I think we all intuitively feel that there's something that we're doing together. And it's actually really important, as important as the surface of the retreat is, all the rules that, for the people who are new, Jana just went over with you, or guidelines, I guess we say. We don't want to be too tight. (laughs) There are a lot of guidelines. And, you know, there's our sitting, our walking. We have small groups. Some people will sign up for one-on-one meetings. We have our yogi job practice our eating practice. But it's easy to think that that's the important thing or to get overly focused on doing the retreat right, behaving, looking like a respectable retreatant. And I'm sure some of the people who've been here for four days already that some part of the personality will feel like, well, I've been here four days, I should look like I know what I'm doing. (laughs) I'm definitely not going to let the new people show me up. (laughs) Admit it. So we, you know, it happens so much, this imitation, where we, you know, want to put on our serene look or walk a little slower. (laughs) As if we're not actually touching the ground. (laughs) You know, in maybe a more accurate way, you know, when we know what we're doing, when we have a sense, the thing that we together are doing, sympathetically vibrating with, is just being real. Being really honest, really aware of how it is. And you know, one of the things that strikes me always on retreat is how much clearer I get About how much of the time I'm not real, not really here, not really aware that it's like this now. This is what's happening, this is what's being known. It is, I I think, the greatest irony of all is that we have this human life, and the thing we're best at is being disconnected. (laughs) Isn't that ironic? you know, all the gross and very subtle ways we have of being disconnected. Shutting down, shutting life off out of fear, out of some kind of exuberance, excitement about, passion about something. But to take a hold of that idea, to fixate on that idea means We disconnect from the body. We disconnect from the moment. I think when we notice this, and this often happens when people show up on retreat, there's a a kind of crash. And part of that crash is we're finally feeling what it feels like to have been so disconnected so much of the time. It's so exhausting to be disconnected in the same way that it's so enlivening to be connected. Although initially being connected may be that we're connected with the exhaustion of having been disconnected. So although it's healing and enlivening to be aware of that exhaustion all of a sudden we realize how exhausted the body and mind is are. So don't be embarrassed or feel like a failure if you're exhausted for a while. Ideally, we'd have a two-year, three-year, four-year retreat, (laughs) and it would be like nothing to take a couple weeks to really let the whole system crash, hit bottom, and slowly put itself back together again. That would be ideal. And uh, maybe not this lifetime, but why not aspire to having an opportunity to do longer retreats, nine-day retreat, four-week retreat, two-month retreat, or whatever makes sense in your life at some point, at least once, so that you can really allow that to happen. So you're not these old patterns of our mind about you know being the good Girl Scout, Boy Scout, being on time, sitting upright. It's not that any of that is wrong, of course, it's all good, but when it's a, a dependency of the mind, when it's on the surface, but isn't coming from a feeling of being alive, and energized by life. Welcome, Dia. We're all here now. Do you want a chair? There's two over here. And if you brought your cushion, there's a spot next to Kathleen over here, too, if you rather have that. Oh, that's nice. Can we garden? Yeah. Thanks. I was just saying that uh, really be on the lookout even though it is a relatively short retreat, for some of you it will be very long (laughs) (laughs) but in the great scheme of things it's a relatively short retreat but it's actually good to have the attitude that it's really long and you know when you look at a moment you know there are a lot of moments between now and Monday 12 noon So it's a really healthy attitude to really give yourself space. And what that does, it also makes us responsible for listening to our mind and our body and our heart, which is so much of what the practice is all about. We have to be interested in how it is. So part of it is listening and part of it is a willingness to be creative because It's just not about being mindful of how it is, but it's comprehending how it's all working. We're being mindful and we're comprehending. And what are we comprehending? We're comprehending like when I have this attitude or when I'm doing this with my mind or this with my body, this is what unfolds. This is what arises. So we're just connecting the dots, basically, cause and effect. So when... You know, it's emphasized that we have to be responsible for our body, our mind, our heart, and that this is a creative endeavor, even though there is a schedule and there are lots of guidelines, and it is important if you miss the overview to read through the guidelines, especially if you're brand new to the Common Ground retreats. But it's also equally important to hold it lightly and to understand. All of the guidelines are just about learning how to better take care of ourselves and to take care of everybody else on the retreat. It's not about perfection or um, doing it right. It's about taking care of the mind and taking care of the balance of our mind and, as best we can, taking care of everybody else, supporting their attempts to take care of the balance of their minds. And you'll find, you know, sometimes you'll be holding that old energy of being tight and forcing and competitive will come. But for half of us, the tendency will be more of holding back. I'm saving myself for my kick, Monday morning. So we'll have that sort of attitude, like, well, I don't know how this is going to go, so I'm going to hold back. Or I don't really trust this. So, I'm going to hold back. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. So, just to show them, you know, I'm not going to, I'll, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself, so I'll pretend like I'm doing it, but I'm not really going to do it. So, all those ways that you're holding back because you don't have to prove anything to anybody else. So, why not really give yourself to it? And then you're just, Like giving ourselves to it, it's this comprehension where we're just learning like when I'm over-attached, pushing, it doesn't work. When I'm afraid or holding back, it doesn't work. So that's so much of what we do here is we swing. We go too far one way and we go too far the other way. But when we do that 10 or 20,000 times, we start to get an intuitive sense of what balance is. And the balance, you know, that insight about that balanced mind is precisely from having missed it so many times. That's how we begin to get it. Think about how many times we worried, we've worried, and we've been aware of worrying, and aware that worrying is stressful in a direct, immediate scene you know that it's unproductive that it's hurtful to the mind and body you see how many times we have to see it before the mind really gets it that worrying doesn't help or going to fantasies for some lasting satisfaction how many times i'm i'm not talking about all the times you've been involved in fantasies but haven't had the wherewithal to see and feel what that's like. Just all the times we've been in fantasies and there's been a moment of noticing what it's like, like how it leaves us feeling like we've missed something or we've been sold a bill of goods. There's nothing really there. You know how it is, you know, you can get so juiced up. I've been, as I often go, uh... My mind often goes to, you know, the perfect property on the south shore of Lake Superior, <laughs> and I've got a couple that I'll see later in September. And um, you know, I, and I, you know, I'm, I consider myself a pretty sophisticated practitioner. <laughs> so I, in a way, I know what I'm doing. But it's just amazing how many times I see myself. It will come up, and my mind will think that there's some real-life energy in fantasizing about having a place to go to. So, uh, Sharon, sorry? Yeah, she told me she lives in up in the Upper Peninsula by Lake Superior. You know? And immediately it's like, How much is land up there? (laughs) How far away was that? (laughs) You know, and it's like uh, the mind is hungry even though when I'm mindful, when I catch it, it's always stressful to be uh, having created a sense of a somebody who will be happy when blank. Because I basically have killed this life right here it really it's it's a it's that kind of violence subtle but it's real violence when we construct a somebody who will be happy when i get rid of or when i get then we put a squeeze on this life that's being lived right now so we have to see these patterns of mind, that's really what we're doing here. We're creating the conditions where, not we're not creating the conditions where the mind won't swing. We're creating the conditions where the mind is gonna swing like it always swings, into grasping, into being afraid, you know, aversion and craving. But in this setting, we're more likely, to have moments of seeing the ouch here and the ouch there. And then the release in moments of balance when the mind isn't grasping, isn't attaching, isn't rejecting, isn't fearing. The thing is the balanced mind doesn't stand out much. So that's why initially before insight is really developed, initially, we're really taking our cue from suffering a lot of the time, because we really get that this isn't it, you know, being really wanting something, and this isn't it, really trying to fix or control or get rid of. But after a while, slowly, for most people, gradually, we start having intuition, like a, a background taste in the mind of what balance tastes like, what it is like. So we, we kind of know when we're in the vicinity. We know how to sort of find it again because it's already here. Like that wonderful image that I've heard Sharon Salzberg use. Maybe some of you have read her writings where she talks about this simile or heard her speak about being on a tightrope and when we're greedy being greedy, reaching, grasping it throws us off balance and we fall or if we get aversive draw back, recoil in some way we fall off if we get diluted or spaced out or disconnected in some way we fall off but we always land back on the tightrope there's nowhere else to go and the tightrope of course is just here and now it's the present moment the way it is and his question is here and now, this being how it is? Are we gonna be balanced? or Are we going to fall into the habit of aversion, or greed, or disconnection, delusion, in some fashion? Joseph Goldstein, one of um, my main teachers, said, uh, You know, often in my interviews with him would say something, maybe because he saw I had a a tendency to be greedy in my practice, wanting insight. And he'd correct that by saying, it's already here. It's already here. Because we have a strong sense of I'm a somebody who's here that really wants to be there in my practice. You know, I want insight. And we end up looking in all the wrong places. Right? Because as long as we think it's somewhere else, that means we're never going to find it. As long as we think it's somewhere else, we're never going to find it. We'll never have insight. Or another way of saying that, the cause for insight to arise isn't thinking that it's somewhere else. The cause for insight to arise is a an honest interest in how it is now. Like really valuing even if our mind is like not behaving itself or we're in a funk, our mind is really dull, we just like just like heavy glue, you know, and a kind of sinking energy that we can traverse through on retreat for sometimes long periods of time. Again, one of the advantages of really long retreats is you don't think anything of being in glue for two weeks. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that happens. And then, you know, being in a more frenzied, restless stage for a number of days, maybe even weeks, or even having long retreats that were mostly characterized by being out of balance in this way, or mostly characterized by being ba- out of balance. You know, we could, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be able to look back and laugh with our friends and say, oh yeah, I remember the 40s. That's when I was mostly out of balance in this way. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, and then the 50s, it shifted. And and just to have that really vast sweep of practice that were really... like." It doesn't matter if we're out of balance as long as we're learning. You know, oh, this isn't working. This isn't it. It's really clarifying. The only problem is if we're overly restless or overly dull or gravitating towards craving or gravitating towards aversion and we don't realize it's the cause for suffering. That's the only tragedy. If we're You know, if the mind's going toward aversion or going toward craving, but we're having moments where we're realizing this isn't the way, then we're doing our practice. Things are changing. And to really um, feel good about seeing that over and over and over again. You know, the mind getting identified, getting caught in the different ways, and knowing that it's like this now, is the practice it's not a mistake we shouldn't feel badly about that I think uh, we need all of us we need some kind of image that uh, um, makes us feel okay about this gradual vast thing we've taken up here and that the joy and the feeling of being enlivened by the practice, it comes not from sort of getting to some end, getting the the goods at the end, the gold at the end, but just knowing that we're moving in a good direction. Like that, that's a joy we can really, that's a joy that's accessible, that what we're doing is wholesome, we're moving in the right direction. It doesn't mean we're always moving in the right direction, but when we're not moving in the right direction, there's bound to be a time when we see that, we get it, and that's a little bit more learning, a little bit more insight to see how we've gotten off balance, caught in some way. You see why having a sense of humor is so useful. You know, just to... Because everything else is just another self trip, another self centered trip about having to, you know, get inside or figure this practice out. And by definition, unavoidably, any self trip, even a self trip around this practice, is suffering. It's the wrong direction, it hurts. And if, you, if that's not enough to sort of make you uh, more interested in not taking the practice personally, you're screwing it up for other people. <laughs> it's true because if, if we're really involved with our practice as some self-improvement project, it makes it easier for other people to fall into that. But when we, you know, after the retreat or when you're driving home with somebody or in our small groups, you know, if you're able to kind of manifest that sense of spaciousness and vastness to your practice, a sense of humor about being caught in craving, being caught in aversion and really willingness to sort of see it over and over again then you're creating the same kind of space and that sort of wise space for other people to kind of We get it. There's so much on this path, especially because we don't have fully enlightened teachers around, as as much as I can tell. And uh, so much of our path is figured out through this triangulation, you know, where we're hearing from our friends and our teachers. And we're kind of getting some little intuitive sense from hearing a little bit from this person a little bit from that person you know and a lot of what we hear is like people catching how they're involved in suffering they're really getting that comprehending that cause and effect when the mind is active in this way or behaving in this way or seeing things in this way the whole body and heart and mind get constricted and it hurts and isn't that amazing to see that you know, there I am again doing that. How does that come to be? You know, that curiosity and that sharing around like how we end up believing that this will lead to happiness when, when we do have a moment of mindfulness, we see again. That doesn't lead to mindf- uh, happiness. That directly, you know, like the Monopoly game, go directly to jail. <laughs> do not pass go. Don't get anything. You just go, you know, you go right to suffering. And that's how it is when our mind is involved in any kind of grasping or clinging, any aversion or greed, any disconnection. It directly hurts. And so to feel enlivened by seeing that, that's something we can definitely do on this retreat and do for each other in our small groups. And just energetically, even when we're not communicating, but just uh, feeling enlivened by the unwholesome patterns of our minds. Enlivened because we're seeing them as being unwholesome. You know, as... The Buddha didn't often, but he did sometimes talk about the goal of practice, nibbana, as a positive result. But mostly he talked about it as the experience of the mind when the patterns of constriction cease. So when the mind is no longer constructing stress, no longer constructing the pain of alienation or isolation, no longer constructing any idea that it identifies with that involves suffering or stress or constriction. You know, that's why, you know, these words like emptiness, Nibbana actually means cessation, the ending of suffering, the ending of the activity, the present moment activity. So whatever the heart or mind is doing in this moment, when that ceases, then it's the cessation of that that is the culmination of human happiness. A happiness, you know, in the Buddhist cosmological sense, this is a happiness that rocks all the celestial realms. Literally, like earthquakes go on, and not just, you know, angels. But I don't know if you've studied, but we'll have to get Ajahn Purnadhamma to come down, maybe this winter, because he's coming down in December. Maybe I'll ask him to do, he's got a talk he's put together about uh, the Buddhist realms of existence. (laughs) He was trying to think of a, uh, an obscure to- topic he could teach at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies out in Massachusetts. And, uh, well, no one's teaching about that. So, but I, I find it really useful. I mean, not, not useful to believe in these cosmological models, but as metaphors. And so this awakening, this cessation of greed and delusion and aversion in our minds, it is such a powerful event that in the Buddhist cosmological sense, it rocks all the realms. So there are, I don't know, 32 realms. Human realm is near the bottom. You know, below human realm, animal realms, and the hungry ghost realms, and then there are all the different hell realms, you know, the icy hell, and the hot hells, and the pointy hells. (laughs) (laughs) They're very descriptive. Mm -hmm. And then, but there are many realms above. There's sort of warring god realms, you know, where the beings that have a lot of power just sort of jockeying for more power, these different kind of nature spirits, you know. And then you get into the central realms, kind of what we might imagine heaven realms to be, where you get to delight in a lot of wonderful, pleasant experiences. And then you get into the sort of Brahma realms that have like sort of our more typical Christian notions of God, you know, beings with great omnis- omniscience and omnipresence and power to sort of hold it all and, um, you know, and then even beyond that, non-material realms of love and compassion and joy. So the Brahma Vaharas, but it's like uh, not in a, not even in an energy body at that point. So the immaterial realms. So there's like all of these realms, but all of them get rocked when a human being or any being, when the force of greed and aversion and delusion cease in their mind. And so that's that's kind of a nice image, like, uh, you know, we may, you know, in the great scheme of, you know, cosmological scheme, it may seem sort of Not very important, you know, to have a body that still has to poop and you get sick, you know, we get the mucus. And it doesn't seem like we're in an exalted place. But because we're in a realm that has enough suffering so that we don't forget about it, we're in this place where we can get interested in this balance that I've been talking about we can begin to get interested in a happiness, the happiness of cessation, and that it's already here, as opposed to the happiness that comes from getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. You know, the thing about the more exalted realms is the experiences that are available are so intoxicating and available why would we be interested in this this subtle balance of mind? It's hard to stay interested in it. But because life is so regularly disappointing for us, you know, having a body is sometimes really pleasant, but a lot of time it's frustrating having a body. And even when it's pretty good having a body, we don't know what's around the corner for us. So we can't even, <coughs> unless we're deluded... Rest in our really pleasant experiences that we do get from time to time in our body because we don't know how long it's going to last. Yeah, same with the mind, mental experiences. So it, it's sort of fortunate for us that we can get interested in the mind. And that's exactly what we're doing on retreat. We're sort of doing what humans, you know, the human realm is really good for is we're investigating this profound balance of mind, a mind that's vividly present, interested, alert, connecting. So if you think the retreat or meditation or mindfulness is about getting into a soft, nice place and hanging out, you're misunderstanding because... And it's not that that's bad, and sometimes we will reside in those places and it's okay to rest in those places just like it's okay to go to bed at night you know so sometimes really pleasant states of mind do arise and if you want to settle into that for a while that's okay but ultimately that's not going to help except it might refresh your mind you might feel really calm and uh, peaceful and maybe even fearless if you reside in those beautiful states of mind for periods of time. But ultimately, we need to do the work of being in a more ordinary state of mind so we can see the tendency to go to greed and the tendency to go to aversion and the tendency to go to disconnection, delusion, and that it doesn't work. We have to keep seeing that and then begin to discover moments of being in that pure balance where we're on the tightrope are in the present moment but the mind isn't trying to do anything. It's just letting everything move but it's not constructing any friction in the present moment. And trying not to construct any friction is constructing friction. So it can't be something you do it's something you realize it's not an ego stance balance isn't an ego stance so it's something we realize is possible mostly from noticing how all of our ego stances don't work the ego stance is always going to want to make something happen by getting rid of something or holding on to something or giving up right when we give up on life, just want to, you know, whatever it is, you know, for everything from suicide on one end to just wanting to go to sleep again, wanting to dull out in some way, we just keep getting it doesn't work. And that makes the mind really interested. And we, you know, we're a little bit, uh, this is why it is good to be able to access pleasant states of mind. Because we get a little bit like a caged animal, like we get really intelligent about what doesn't work, all the habits of mind that don't work, that don't deliver real happiness, real peace, and we have some intuition that something will work, but we're just always frustrated, and our basic tactic is, you know, once once we have some sense of the practices. We try to do greed, aversion, and delusion, but in more subtle ways, thinking that that's the ticket. You know, gross aversion, gross delusion, gross greed, clearly doesn't work. You know, we kind of got that down. Sometimes in the middle of the night, you know, yogis will go to the kitchen fridge just to make sure that's not true. (laughs) You know, like, you know, wanting to eat, 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 to see, like, just getting what I want. Or, you know, sometimes, uh, I remember once <laughs> somebody used to come to Common Ground, she did a long retreat, I think over a year at IMS, uh, doing all the retreats, and then between the retreats she was just doing self-retreat, maybe like a year and a half. And <laughs> finally, she'd kind of gotten herself really in some not-so-balanced state. And so the teacher said uh, to her, you know, you just need to go into town and hang out for a while. (laughs) So again, she went into town and she saw like three or four movies in a row. (laughs) You know, got the one o'clock matinee and then the four o'clock and then the seven and then the nine. And You can imagine, after having been on retreat for so many months, that kind of stimulation wasn't so helpful. (laughs) I mean, who knows? Probably wasn't so helpful... You know, whatever the rut was that she was in, that probably wasn't so helpful too. So this is the, this is our, you know, inevitable situation here on retreat is we're going to be swinging. Hopefully they won't be that big of swings where you're going to indulge in a little greed or you're going to indulge in a little aversion, you know, and you're just going to have your fit about somebody who's driving you crazy on the retreat or you're driving yourself crazy <laughs> or... You know, some pattern of your mind is driving you crazy, or your knee pain is driving you crazy, or the heat, or, or some. You know, like I had in moments today about, you know, I did that about the getting the place in the South Shore, and then it was like, uh, you know, we could convert half of our house, my wife and I, we could convert half of my house to a little kind of a care center for people who are old and dying. You know, and just a little apartment and just make it just right and ramps and redo the bathroom and how would I do the heat so it would be really comfortable <laughs> for people who are old or people who are sick and I mean even something that you know, quote unquote it's a wholesome thought you know, it's greed it's just greed you know, and it's suffering and uh We have to keep learning this over and over. Disconnecting is suffering. Wanting things to be a certain way is suffering. Not wanting things to be a certain way is suffering. So, this is our working ground for our retreat. And, uh, you know, we've got this mind. And all we have to do, and you could use this as a theme for the retreat, you know, a, a phrase that you can come back to over and over again. It's already here. Just remember, it's already here. The whole working ground, the whole dynamic, absolutely everything we need to take care of our situation, our, you know, the experience of human suffering, to sort of generate some faith from the Buddha, And then on down to all of the lineage of wise women and men that have said basically the same thing, that everything we need to resolve the experience of suffering, it's already here. We have what we need. And it's just a matter then of being interested. One image I like, you know, in terms of that interest, Uh, from the time of the Buddha, this phrase, uh, a honed and heavy axe. Some of you might have seen, Ajahn Charnako wrote a book, a booklet, it's not that big, um, with this title, A Honed and Heavy Axe. And he's talking in that booklet um, about samadhi and panya, um, wisdom and calm. And this is what helps us do this work. You know, this is why when blissful, exalted, peaceful states of mind arise, it's okay to really let that develop, to let it flourish. It won't last forever. You can even remind yourself, this is temporary, but it's healing. I don't need to be afraid of this beautiful experience of calm or this beautiful experience of peace. It will last for a while, and then it will go away. But for as long as it lasts, I allow, allow it to blossom, uh, appreciate it, be interested in it, be interested in like how healing it is, interested in if, if it could be even more healing, without being greedy, but just curious. Could this calm become even more calm? Could this inner bliss become even more blissful? Could this peace... Be even deeper let it refine because this gives us the weight to this investigation around balance so in that image of a honed and heavy axe the calm the healing of calm and peace gives the mind some uh, steadiness some solidity it seems funny you know because we often talk in Buddhist practice about emptiness one of the things you'll feel uh, when you have that balance of mind, when you're in the vicinity, you'll feel a sense of steadiness or even solidity, like grounded. You know, we have some words just in our usual way of languaging things that convey this experience, unshakable fearless, trusting. These all have a kind of weight to them, these mental qualities. And this is what allows the wisdom to do its work. Otherwise, it's like we're trying to cut down a tree with a razor blade, you know. The mind is keen, we're really interested, but there's no weight behind the sharpness. It's just sharpness. And we can get endlessly frustrated. Like we've studied, we have a really good intellectual understanding of the teachings, of what the Buddha means by right view, how it's just nature unfolding. We've thought about it, we've considered it, it makes a lot of sense. We have faith on that level, that intellectual level. But we don't really have, we're not really feeling like insights that are transforming our life. And then we might well we ask, what well, do we have? Does my mind have weight? No. Do I have a heavy axe? Do I have that solidity, that stability, that steadiness of mind, that fearlessness, that unshakable attention? Because that's that continuity of attention. You know, when we touch bliss and calm and peace, of course, that's contentment. And the, the nature of contentment is the mind doesn't feel like it has to do anything because it's content. So that's the steadiness, the stability of mind. It's like, it's not grounded because it's trying to be grounded. It's grounded because it feels good and it doesn't, that, that neurotic restlessness that so characterizes our mind just isn't there for a while because we've touched some inner happiness, peace. So to to do the practice, that, like I was saying, it's, a, it's inevitably a creative endeavor because somebody might have a lot of sharpness, but the other person might have a lot of weight. And what they need is the sharpness, For this person over here, they need the weight. And it's not always, you know, we may have a particular tendency, but it's also like, right now, how is it for us? Well, I don't have any weight, and I don't have any sharpness. <laughs> no wisdom, no samadhi. Okay, well then you just develop your practice in a balanced way, both, right? That's generally how we teach, you know, where we're doing some things that really support the inner bliss, like even just holding the body still, using an anchor, starting again, being in a beautiful nature, walking, seeing the green, feeling the wind, seeing the big sky, looking at the water, feeling compassion, these are all things that support weight, stability. Anything with love and appreciation supports um, the weight of the mind, the stability, steadiness of mind. Anytime the mind is able to connect and sustain with life as it is, supports this. It's so deeply healing and satisfying for the mind not to be wandering here and there. You know, this is what the Buddha used the word samsara, this endless wandering on. You don't need to just think about this in a cosmological sense of lifetime after lifetime. Just observe your mind for a half an hour, especially like in the dining hall, where you know, there's a lot stimulating our mind. I just observe how the mind goes from one thing to the next. We see the zucchini and the quinoa stew today, you know, and then I remember the time someone brought a zucchini that was that big. I wonder what they're doing now, you know. I remember he did that to me that one time. I'll hmm? never forgive him for that. <laughs> Who else has hurt me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and just to see that samsara, that the mind, one thing leads to another, each thing that arises in the mind then is related to with greed, aversion, or delusion, another moment of suffering, another moment of stress, the cause for the next moment of stress, the cause for the next. And if we see it, it breaks our heart, it enlivens us, and we get interested in this balance. Like the Buddha says, is there anybody who knows anything about dukkha? about suffering is there and, you know and then we say well the buddha seemed to know something let's see if what he came to understand is true let's check it out and so he talks about balance about having a honed and heavy axe so the the sharpness the honed part is like really understanding intellectually what right view is really getting a sense like how to investigate our experience. The calm, the inner bliss, the samadhi gives us the steadiness, the continuity, because we're content, the mind's not dull and it's not restless. It's just happy to be, be you know? And the awareness is already there, right? Awareness is already there. And as long as the awareness isn't neurotically trying to get happy, then it's steady, and it sees things as they are. And now what we need to do is just add a little sharpness, which is we're taking the medicine of the Buddha's awakening and then through the women and men down to us, right? And they tell us something. They say, they say Listen, I've been there, I've had deep insight, and this is now I'm articulating, I'm using concepts to tell you about it, I'm pointing it out conceptually. Use that. Don't get fixated on the words, but use that, use that view that I'm conveying to you to, as a filter, as a way of orienting your attention toward the present moment. And so the basic, you know, the, the easy way for, to talk about wisdom is instead of seeing things in terms of self, what I like, what I don't like, what I don't care about, we see things in terms of nature. It doesn't matter what object we're looking at. So we've got that contentment, some degree of calm. The mind's content, so it's not wandering here and there looking for happiness, because it is happy. And so it's steady, it's stable. It's got the clarity that comes from that. And then we add right view, which is what happens if I look at, open to experience, as if it's just nature without any center unfolding. And, you know, you could use another teaching of the Buddhas, which is like highlighting how everything is changing. Like, just see the impermanence of whether you're looking at emotion or thought or sensation or visual field or auditory field or the movement of the body when you're walking. You know, just notice the dynamic changingness of all things. Or notice the conditional nature. That's more like I was saying in the beginning, that it's it's a lawful, interdependent unfolding. Everything is unfolding, but there's no center and nothing behind the unfolding. And this is something we can actually see, just like we can get it intellectually now to some degree, but then when the mind is steady and stable, it's like... All we need is a little seed of this intellectual understanding because if this is in fact the way that it is, once we start to look in this way, the nature of things will take care of the rest because things are impermanent. Things are conditional. They're not self. Whenever the mind takes things personally, there's dukkha. And we'll see that that will be obvious. What makes it not obvious is that we're not interested in this view or, and or the mind's not stable enough, steady enough. The attention isn't steady enough. Because remember, this is not about that we're not good enough or we're not trying hard enough. This awakening process is as natural as grass growing or wind blowing. So when the causes are there, the insight will happen. When there's a heavy and sharp axe, insight will begin to happen. If there's no insight happening, it's either because the axe isn't heavy or it isn't sharp. And you can just ask yourself, like you're in a period and, you know, it's been a while, half a day, you know, and you feel like nothing's happening. And then, uh, you know, if you're really skilled right then, you can just meet that with a heavy and sharp axe, that feeling that nothing's happening, and you can have profound insight right then. But if that doesn't work, then you can take the next strategy. So always the first strategy is just to open to whatever is happening with as much heaviness and sharpness, as much calm and interest as you can. And if that doesn't work, then the second strategy is just to ask yourself, like this is the creative part of the retreat, what could I do to bring some more weight, more steadiness, that healing of love, the healing of calm, of continuity of attention, you know, the abandoning of distraction, what can I do? What what might my mind, what wholesome thing might my mind absorb into? And in doing that, stop wandering through samsara, stressing itself out. What could I ask my mind to do? You know, oh, take a walk. Oh, come to the breath. Oh, I'll do some loving-kindness practice. Or what could I do to sharpen my interest, to, to show my respect to my teacher, the Buddha, and sort of maintain, sort of at least intellectually, that sort of holding his view, seeing with his eyes. Is this self or is this nature? You know, to have that reflective, Approach like we're really interested, and this is goes to that statement that I suggested. You remember, it's already here. I've said this recently in one of the um, weekly practice groups. You know, if the in the orientation, Janet said. By the way, just to make this interesting, the staff has buried, you know, three hundred thousand dollars in gold bullion somewhere on the retreat site. Whoever finds it can have it. You know, we would be vividly, most of us, present for this retreat. <laughs> we might be greedy, but we'd be interested. And so, this is that that wisdom part is like what the Buddha has said really intrigues us. That happiness is available. Like Thich Nhat Hanh has this great line: "Happiness is available. Please help yourselves." <laughs> you know, so we would be interested. But I think we've been burnt too many times you know looking for happiness and then not getting not getting it that we either have given up or we ha- we're stuck in some view that not in this lifetime you know i'm too sick i'm too old i have i'm too distractable i have too much knee pain whatever it is i have this my heart hurts when i sit so there's we have reasons why that it's not here. It's like, yeah, I know the Buddha says it's already here, but I don't think he was right. <laughs> now, if we said that out loud, we'd, we'd feel like so arrogant. But we don't feel arrogant actually living that way. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is just a, a way to play. So a couple of things just to hold with you, to keep bringing up. It's already here. And then that image of a honed and heavy ax. And images are nice because they contain a lot of information, a lot of teachings, just in that image of a honed and heavy axe. You know, spend the whole weekend just getting interested about sharpness and what the Buddha meant about that and the heaviness and what that, what that actually feels like when the heart's content and stable and steady. What it feels like when the heart is really interested. Not going not gonna to give up. It's like we got the scent of something. Like the Buddha says, we get the scent, the taste of freedom, and it's unforgettable. You know, we can't forget what that freedom is like when all of the problems the self imagines it has don't exist. So I'll leave it there tonight, and we'll pick it up tomorrow night, and then again on Saturday, and again on Sunday just looking at this theme in different ways. But let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a few breaths together in silence. So we have about 25 minutes for walking practice. If you didn't get a chance to meet your roommates, feel free to connect with them in your room so that the talking is behind closed doors. And uh, if you have any questions, please don't be shy about asking Jana or me or if they refer to the kitchen, Lee Rosenberg, if you haven't met her, is our kitchen manager. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Jenny Ross is our kitchen manager. We've had a transition, and Sharon also is assisting. Where's Sharon? Oh, back there. Oh, she is. so you can connect with them about the kitchen stuff if you have any questions. Um, and when we come back, we'll do the tonight. We'll do the refuges and precepts, um, so you can have that ready at uh, nine o'clock when we come back. Great. So time for walking, unless you still need to settle in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.